I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. I think, you know, what the Wagner episode uh, shows us that, as usual, all authoritarian systems are brittle and fragile, that there's a lot of fighting behind the scenes, that war always intensifies those uh, stresses, that something could happen at any point, and that the authoritarian leader himself is the wild card in the system. With the fighting in Ukraine well into its second year, the question of the war's endgame has gotten, if anything, more complicated. Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin's short-lived mutiny has raised doubts about Vladimir Putin's grip on power, yet Ukraine's counteroffensive is not going as well as many had hoped, as Ukrainian forces have yet to make a major breakthrough across heavily defended Russian lines. To talk through these developments, I was recently joined by Sam Cherup, Fiona Hill, and Andrei Zagorodniak for a Foreign Affairs Live event. We discuss what's going on on the battlefield, the state of Putin's power, and possible endgames to the war. We are holding this as Ukraine's long-anticipated counteroffensive starts to unfold. It's been, we're a few weeks in. It comes in the wake of last week's NATO summit in Vilnius, which on the one hand left Ukrainian officials frustrated with a lack of any clarity on membership, but did, I think, reinforce the NATO commitment to Ukraine over the long haul. And then also a few weeks away from the strange rebellion of Prigozhin in, in, uh, in Russia, and I think our attempts to make sense of where that leaves Putin and what decision-making might look like from the Kremlin's perspective. We are lucky to have a fantastic slate of guests, each of whom has contributed really a slew of important pieces to the magazine over the last uh, the last couple of years. First, we have Sam Cherup, who is the author of a trenchant essay and the new issue, which is called An Unwinnable War, Washington Needs an Endgame in Ukraine. Sam is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation and previously served on the State Department policy planning staff during the Obama administration. Uh, next, we have Fiona Hill. Fiona served as senior director for Russia and Europe on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. She's now a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, has written three or four really powerful essays on Putin and Russia for foreign affairs over the last couple of years. And last but not least, we have Andrei Zagorodniak, who served as Ukraine's Minister of Defense under President Zelensky in 2019 and 2020. He is now the chair of the Center for Defense Strategies. He's done a few really notable pieces for FA over the last year, the most recent one, made the case for Ukraine's NATO membership. Andre is, is joining us from uh, his car, as you can see, somewhere in central Ukraine. He has been traveling around, seeing various parts of the battlefield, parts of the front. So he is especially well positioned to bring us some of the ground truth as we try to make sense of where things are. So Andre, let me start with you. There's been so much argument over strategy in the last six months that has centered on the prospects of Ukraine's counteroffensive, which is now unfolding. I think a lot of the kind of early analyses of the counteroffensive are fundamentally motivated by different senses of where the war might end. You've seen this on the ground more directly than certainly anyone in this conversation. What should we make of the counteroffensive so far? How's it going and what are the prospects as you as you look at? First of all, I have to say that I'm almost talking about two different realities and two different events, because uh, indeed there's been uh, very hard work, extremely tough, extremely dangerous. We have lots of losses. We have lots of losses in equipment, lots of losses in uh, among people. But there is absolute determination that to make this as a success. And then the uh, the main objective right now, the main sort of focus is on ability of Russians to defend their positions. So, which means that there's a substantial focus on destroying the logistical facilities, warehouses, uh, particularly the uh, ammunition depots, command posts, and just to to make sure that whoever is left with uh, with of the people 
is basically they're deprived from basic command and control structure, logistical support, and so on and so on. That is number one priority comparing to just a percentage of territory gained. And this is this is important to, to distinguish because sometimes I talk to journalists when I go back to Kiev and they, they, the whole question which they ask is like, okay, how many villages are retaken? How many square kilometers of land is retaken? That's not the performance indicator which people are looking at, at least at this point of time. So then the next uh, the next point is that, uh, of course, attacking Russian positions, which are quite heavily fortified, particularly in some areas, and the quantity of landmines is just staggering. We have sometimes landmines in a distance of like half meter for each from another. It's very difficult sometimes to locate them, and it's, it's it's tough to plan any operations, understanding that they're pretty much everywhere in some in some of the areas. Uh, plus, generally, the several levels of the of the fortification lines. The question is not like whether it's possible or not. The question is like uh, we just need to make sure that uh, it's done in a very proper way, in a very careful way. And the last thing we need to do is to rush. It's tough to me to say because I'm I'm obviously understanding this from the discussion of the operational experts which are on the ground. But basically, the idea is that they're looking for windows of opportunity and they're looking for uh, some specific areas. They're working in these areas. It's not happening so fast. But they're absolutely confident that there will be an, another phase, another stage where they already pass through some defense lines. And then obviously the situation will be completely different. And then, of course, uh, there's the whole like a massive in- wave of information attention to this. And sometimes it's perceived in a quite different way. And it's it's tough to say what, what the one should do about that, except that all I can say at this stage is that I'm absolutely certain that uh, the commanders which are currently on the ground, they know what to do. Of course, the different brigades have different experience, different different battalions have different uh, training. And so indeed, sometimes the, the performance very much different between the well-trained and experienced and not trained and, and, and less experienced. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm positive that we will see the development further and it's going to be a success. You know, let, let me turn to you to um, do what you can to make sense of how things look from from Moscow. We all watched the Prigozhin affair a few weeks ago with, I think, fascination that led to uh, some analysis that Putin was much me- weaker with than we thought as we've watched things unfold in the, uh, the last few weeks. It's a little bit hard to say whether that's true or not. What do you make of the state of Putin's power, whether there are real threats to, to his grip, whether that does indicate anything about the state of his regime. And then second, how do you think he sees the path forward in the war? What is his theory of what he's trying to do in the months ahead? I'm actually sitting in um, Berlin at the moment. I've been here for five months. And actually, it feels like I'm in Moscow a lot of the time because there are so many Russians here. There are also, of course, an enormous number of refugees from Ukraine and also from Belarus. So, I mean, this is, you know, kind of a bit in a way of transplanting a lot of the um, areas of discussion and another reality here, you know, on top of the German and European and other perspectives. So you've got to pick up on quite a lot of information from the Berlin vantage point. And one thing, um, you know, first of all, to pivot from in terms of talking about Putin's own grip on the regime and then where he thinks things play from here, is this point that Andre has mentioned about how we tend to fixate on percentages of territory. And that's really the long, wrong way to look at things. And the very fact that Andre and all of his colleagues are finding that um, the, the, the defensive lines um, in Russia are so heavily mined really underscores the situation here. Russia does not really control, in kind of those physical military terms, all of the portions of Ukrainian territory that we always have, you know, highlighted um, in the media as being under Russian occupation. There's just simply not enough people for that, which is hence why. They are overcompensating the amount of landmines to try to keep Ukraine at bay. 
There's also the question of the populations there. I mean, we've seen, you know, so much of this uh, dislocation. We have to remember it's not about percentages of territory and villages. It's about people who are under occupation and are being, you know, tortured and, you know, all the kinds of attacks on ordinary Ukrainians because really, you know, the Russians and Putin are very worried about their grip on the territory that they've taken. It's not just a question of Crimea. We, of course, are uh, talking today against the backdrop of yet another an incident on the Kurt Strait Bridge. But it's also kind of a question of how much does Russia really have a grip on Kherson, Zaporizhia, the Donbass region, you know, despite having declared that Russia is here to stay and these are now parts of Russian territory. And all these things are tied together. Because if Putin can't show that he is in control, that really does undermine his position at home. And what the Wagner incident uh, shows us here is that now the war in Ukraine, Russia, Putin's war in Ukraine, that is, I mean, it's not something that Ukrainians have started off themselves. And how things are progressing there is very much tied together to the perception of the grip of the regime. Now, it's very interesting stepping back a little bit and looking at polling and talking to various people here in Berlin from Russia, that although everybody is saying this was a terrible mistake, there really is a kind of a, a feeling of great uh, angst and concern about Russia losing. And actually, if you kind of pick beyond um, some of the most obvious dissidents and people who are in opposition here, a lot of Russian diaspora people here in uh, Berlin and elsewhere don't want Russia to lose. This was reflected in the whole Wagner episode. So, you know, what we've got from Prigozhin in addition to the, the spectacle of, you know, a rogue general or rogue mercenary heading towards Moscow, which looks like it's ripped out of the pages of history. Think about how many times this happened in ancient Rome or in any other, you know, kind of authoritarian or historical setting. We've seen this so many times before, putches, you know, rogue generals and colonels being angry about the course of the war. Putin himself referred to 1917, but lots of people have talked about other episodes in uh, Russian history. But what we also had was an unveiling of the truth, this whole exercise. You know, basically, Prigozhin says there was no threat from Ukraine, there was no threat from NATO. This war was a mistake from the beginning, but now we have to win it in some fashion. And our generals don't know how to do it. Only the Wagner group knows how to do this. So obviously, there's business interests involved here. We're now hearing even more about the fact that the Wagner group was actually fully funded by the Kremlin. Well, the veil is off now about the pretense of what this was about, but it's a, an admission that the Russian military itself is not up to the task beyond all of the heavy mining and the destruction of civilian settlements and, you know, the, the shelling and the bombing that, you know, we're seeing, that the, the military cannot prevail on the ground in the way that um, obviously they intended to. And the Wagner group has been filling in and out. So we're seeing behind the scenes here a real kind of battle to the future of this war against the face of uh, the uh, counteroffensive. We've also seen all of the chinks as a result of that in Putin's grip on the security forces around him. This was a whole battle among his security forces. But the other thing that we're also seeing is that there is no sign of any evident successor to Putin. We've all been speculating about this, but you know, I would just say that we have to be very hesitant about getting into the whole action that Putin's grip is so weakened that he could go. I see no evidence of that at this point, which doesn't say that uh, something couldn't happen because we see that the situation is quite precarious. Now, just you know, so we can move over to Sam and um, his commentary here. I think you know what the Wagner episode uh, shows us that, as usual, all authoritarian systems are brittle and fragile. That there's a lot of fighting behind the scenes. That war always um, intensifies those uh, stresses. That something could happen uh, at any point, and that the authoritarian leader himself is the wild card in the system. He is uh, both responsible for its failures and its successes. 
So everyone now is watching Putin in a way that they were not before. And of course, there's a lot, I think, of this episode to play out because we don't know what the heck's going on with Prigozhin. We have all kinds of generals missing in action, lots of speculation about them. Uh, you know, so this is playing out. But we now know very clearly that the whole Russian war effort was based on shifting sands and that it's now put it under a, a great deal of pressure. Sam, l- let me go to you on, on on two points. First, let's talk a bit about the the recommendations you laid out in your piece. This was a fairly clear blueprint for moving toward uh, laying the groundwork for negotiations now and looking ahead to negotiations between uh, Ukraine and Russia and the United States and other actors in the months ahead. Ex- explain what you would like to see in the coming months and then tell us how far that is from existing U.S. policy. What elements do you think uh, Washington has embraced of the kind of blueprint you, you lay out and where would you like to see policy change? Great. Well, thanks, Dan. Um, thanks for the invitation. So, you know, my, uh, the argument I made in the piece starts out with an analysis of the trajectory of the conflict. And basically, we have 15 months or more now of evidence to use to draw some at least preliminary conclusions, if not conclusions, and uh, analytical judgments about where things are heading. And that evidence suggests that really neither side is in a position to deliver a decisive military victory, defined particularly as the destruction of the other side's capacity to pose a threat to it going forward. And so equally that the political differences are now so irreconcilable um, between Russia and Ukraine that the idea of some sort of peace treaty or political settlement is also off the table. So we're likely to have a trajectory defined by those two dynamics, whereby neither side is capable of of, uh, essentially delivering a decisive military victory. Both sides will continue to pose a threat to each other uh, with their military capabilities, and neither will likely achieve fully their territorial goals. So that Essentially, where the line is, is just one piece of this broader puzzle that is going to be relatively continuous over time, those fundamental drivers. And so that is sort of the uh, the ingredients for a war that could go on for a very long time. And that, I think, at this point, seems to me the mo- most likely outcome. Um, but ultimately, it's likely to end with those fundamental factors being in place. And so the the point I make in the piece is that, you know, we can either think about achieving some sort of negotiated end in the medium term. Obviously, this is not a short term proposition, or it could be years from now. And likely the fundamentals will be not significantly altered, but the costs will have increased dramatically in both humanitarian, economic and uh, otherwise. And so the most likely outcome in this context looks something like an armistice, an armistice uh, being a durable ceasefire that does not resolve the political uh, disputes between the parties. That would not end the broader conflict, but it would end the the violence if it were successful. And so in the piece, there are several uh, proposals for particular measures that would make that armistice potentially stick, including security commitments and ceasefire support mechanisms and so on, and steps that the U.S. could take now to enable that outcome over time. So between appointing somebody who actually has a job to deal with this uh, kind of conflict diplomacy issue to beginning discussions with allies and and Ukrainians and the Ukrainians about this end game and uh, eventually opening up uh, channels um, with the Russians to engage on this issue. And of course, it's important to emphasize that none of this need come at the expense of anything else that's going on, be it the Ukrainian counteroffensive, U.S. supports, military support for it, and so on. And so I guess where my uh, proposals differ from where the U.S. is right now is that um, essentially 
basically on the on the diplomatic side right now, there's a sense that well, there's not much activity at all, and there's a sense that basically it's unlikely to yield any results, and that the cues must come from the Ukrainians on this for any sort of change. Moreover, that leverage on the battlefield will be required to get an acceptable outcome, so that we need to see this counteroffensive out and provide the Ukrainians with a better position to engage at the end of that. And I guess where I diverge somewhat is that I don't see the diplomatic piece as contradictory to the coercive pressure piece, that these things can be complementary, in fact, and mutually reinforcing. In other words, you don't lose anything by having an active channel at the very most, and you could stand to gain something in the sense of learning, at least, about where the other side's position is. And so I don't expect, even if this were to be implemented tomorrow or so channels be opened and, and conversations about the end game to begin, that this would produce an outcome in a week or a month. We're talking about a month-long process. And in the piece, I you know, recall the fact that it took two years to negotiate the, the Korea armistice and during periods when the fighting was probably the most intense and the United States incurred 45% of its, the casualties total during the war. So I think the point is that there are costs to waiting and beginning the process soon would be, I think, beneficial to all. Andre, l- let me have you react to the proposal broadly, but also to think the assumptions that Sam started with, that there's not really an alternate path. You've argued that there is a path to victory that differs from the course that Sam lays out. So how do you see that proposal and how do you see, where would you um, see potential for an alternate path? Okay, so first of all, before I say anything, I'd like to just reiterate to our listeners that uh, I'm sure the participants know about that, but just wanted to say that, that there's no more people in the world which wants to this war to end in Ukraine. I mean, there's absolutely no desire at all to continue it longer than absolutely necessary. And people are very exhausted. People are extremely traumatized. There's a lot of tragedies happening on every day in a, in a regular families. As you know, the majority of the armed forces are not professional military people. They became professional military people over the last year and a half or even less. There's, of course, a professional element with some history, but it's minority. So we do want peace. And the only skepticism about any proposals which involve Putin's good face is because we have extremely bad experience of dealing with that person over like very, very long period of time. So we just we just have a lot of already a lot of track record which works against this idea. So what I outlined in the in the paper back in in October was uh, that uh, we can free Ukraine. We can push through the uh, Russian defense lines and we can free the territory of Ukraine. And of course, then there would be need some sort of equilibrium at, at, uh, after that, uh, because we do need to stabilize the situation. And the question is, how we're going to stabilize the situation is, is of course, is open. And again, I'm not trying to criticize Sam's position. I personally welcome all positions, and uh, particularly the ones who soberly understand the, uh, the, the chances and, uh, and, and so on. The only problem which we see is that we've been in, in, in the negotiations with Putin on the Minsk Treaty, for example. Clearly, there's been a desire from uh, Ukraine to find it. And uh, as a person who worked for Zelensky since the beginning of his tenure as a president, I can tell you he was absolutely sincere to find the solution. He tried and a lot of people were saying, you know, we've been in war with, with, with Putin for a long time. It's not possible. He has uh, a very different strategic goals. But he tried to do that. And the Minsk agreement didn't work out simply because we have seen that the Russian uh, Russian side, they had a totally different goal uh, than the peace or, and stability in the region. They wanted to pursue with their destructive policy. And that policy and that strategy was above everything else. And that's why we, we're quite uh, negative about the ceasefire proposals, 
just simply understanding that the ceasefire will give uh, Putin an opportunity to recover, rebuild the forces, and then start again. Uh, we understand that he can do that uh, uh, if he stays in power, of course. He can do it in any case. And so basically, we understand that wherever we push him out, uh, even if it's like a complete line uh, of uh, the border of 1991, he still can start recovering. He still can do all this. And since we know that his uh, percentage of the economy invested in the war right now is not like it used to be in World War II when it was like over 70%. You know, it's much less. It's several percent of the economies in the war. So he potentially in the long term, he has a he has a chance to continue. And if he's stable politically, he will try to continue. So we need to learn two things. One thing is that if he goes in the negotiations where he walks away from his claims, for example, claim on the annexed territories, claim about Crimea, claim about Donbass, and basically recognizing the defeat, that can destroy his internal political situation. So that's why we're quite skeptical that he'll do that. And secondly, if he has a chance to continue, he will continue. So our job is to make sure, make sure that he doesn't have that chance, basically deny him an opportunity. And that's why we need to build a very strong security in the region, obviously in Ukraine, in order so for, for any uh, realistic calculation that basically that capability is present, like in a high readiness state, disable him from, from starting another season of that campaign. That's basically it. Just to be clear, can you imagine a negotiation at some point down the road when Ukraine has more, made more progress on the battlefield and he might, might be feeling more vulnerable? Is there is there any circumstance under which you can imagine a negotiation with Putin? I certainly can imagine negotiations with Russian delegation after Putin, that's for sure, because after that, they will clearly understand that they need to get out of this situation. And where, whoever they are, they may start to play differently. Uh, with Putin, based on his or our understanding of his personality, I don't think he he's able to do a, a negotiation in good faith, and that's uh, that's just based on our as assessment who that person is. Also, he passed through so many lines which he cannot un uncross now. You know, including the destruction of Mariupol together with inhabitants, for example. So we certainly are going to be insisting that there is a uh, there is a justice in place. We're certainly going to be insisting that there is a court, international tribunal in place, and so on and so on. Question: How he's going to negotiate, understanding that we're pushing through that, for example? How we uh, we're clearly not going to accept his annexation of territory because there are our people there who never ask him to come, and they are going through immense suffering uh, every day. And we have reports and records about that on a daily basis, and it's it's completely uh, terrible. So, of course, that's why from a negotiation theory to imagine the zone of possible agreement, even in theoretical perspective, is extremely difficult, if possible at all. That's why we are very practical people. We just we just see that as a as a as a something which is extremely low probability. We'll be back after a short break. The following advertisement is brought to you by Switzerland Tourism. She lived with you guys for two years and you never heard from her again after that. Please don't text me or call me again. She finished her art history degree and was researching a Swiss painter, Ursula Bloom. He's standing by a tree, looking right at me. Emma! Music is 100% abstract. Ursula walked up to her and whispered a song in her ear and the girl recovered her ability to speak. Sometimes mythology merges with reality. What's going on here? Bloom is out now. Listen to it on your favorite podcasting platform. Fiona, let me go to you to react to this notion of negotiations, but especially you know, you've studied Putin longer and more deeply than almost anyone in this debate. You've spent time around him. What are the prospects that uh, there might be a space for negotiation that would yield better results than the one uh, the one Andre sees? 
Well, I don't think there's actually much space for yielding better results than Andre sees, to be honest. I'll be frank about that, but which does not rule out diplomacy to, you know, push back to what uh, Sam has been saying. Diplomacy is different from a negotiation because you're preparing the ground to get to some, you know, different place, which has to go in parallel to what we're doing on the military front. So I think that sometimes what Sam is saying is misunderstood in that regard, because I think Sam would also recognize the difficulties of basically finding some negotiated solution that doesn't lead to any kind of loss for Ukraine, because everything involves a loss of Ukraine, because Ukraine's already, as Andre said, lost enormous amounts of people, so many people's lives traumatized and uprooted by all of this, even at the same time that it has secured a victory by pushing back Putin's initial war in. So we've got a very complex situation at hand here, but Andre is absolutely right. Putin has put himself into such a corner that he can't get out of it, even if he wanted to. Because he's made such expansive claims to Ukraine, not just to Crimea, but to the whole of Donbass, of Donetsk and Luhansk, and all of Zaporizhia and Kherson, even the territories that he does not, or the Russians do not control. And they also loosely control, as I said before, much of the territory, you know, that we see on the maps in uh, the newspapers is being, you know, shaded in, you know, with Russian occupation there. He's also, you know, as I said earlier, in terms of the attitude of Russians made it impossible for himself to really back away, as Andreas said as well. I mean, Prigozhin was basically saying this war was a huge mistake. I mean, he's been saying it in more crude terms than this, but we're not going to lose it. And that's unfortunately where we come down in, in most of the Russian polling, including for people who are here in exile. You know, many of them are actually saying in polls, we think this is disastrous, we oppose the war, we don't want to fight the war, but we don't want to see Russia lose, we don't want to see Russia give anything up because they're thinking in terms of these absolute victories of World War I and World War II and following the scenarios through of what happened to Germany in both of those instances. You know, and as Sam has said, you know, the kind of the logic of international diplomacy and negotiation seems to, you know, result in the loss of territory somewhere along the lines and the Russians don't want to see themselves in that regard. So that's where things become really complicated. But I do think that there is a major diplomatic effort that we could engage in. And let me just briefly explain, because there aren't two sides to this. And it's not just sort of Russia, Ukraine, the United States and NATO. This is a huge, enormous threat for European security and also for global security, even if it's not fully recognized. We just had today Russia tearing up the Black Sea Grain Deal. We could have between 10 and 20 million people worldwide dying of starvation this year because of lack of access to Ukrainian grain. Lots of those minefields are uh, some of the most productive Ukrainian farms. We've had the Kafovka Dam blown up, and we've had an ecologic, uh, ecological and climate disaster on our hands. We've got the threats of the Zaporizhia plant, which is very deliberate on the part of Russia. We've seen Russian troops already moving through the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So we, you know, we see all of these ecological climate and, and threats to food security that are there. This is very deliberate for Putin. He's weaponizing food, and he knows that this will you know, have some of an effect. But we've also got Europeans, I mean, I, I'm hearing it all the time now, a huge sea change, particularly at the elite level in Germany and elsewhere and in Europe. People are not going to go back at this particular point to just handing things over to Vladimir Putin because he's try, trying to rewrite European history. And you have the Finns who have joined NATO because of this, the Swedes who have thrown away hundreds of years of neutrality. We know that the Poles are nervous, not just the Baltic states, for example. So Europeans are party to this. And they really do see this in a different light. So it's not just a question of, you know, Putin trying to, you know, negotiate with just Ukraine or negotiate with the United States. Europeans now see this as intrinsic to their security as well. And whatever we do, we'll set a precedent. 
Because what Putin is basically saying is any nuclear state that goes rogue and wants to, you know, kind of basically predate on its neighbor can do so. And we have so many territorial disputes around the world that could be affected by this as well. So I think, you know, Sam is also making a case for a big diplomatic effort. You know, so we see Ukrainian government, you know, going around the world, Zelensky and Yermak and Andriy and others, you know, have been all over the place trying to talk to counterparts as the G7, it's other countries as well, meetings with Brazilians, attempts to meet with South Africa, you know, basically to make this point that what's happening in Ukraine has global implications and we need a global effort to reframe this and to try to address it. So that's diplomacy. Now, whether we get to some, you know, negotiation at the end of that is another matter, but we can focus, as Sam is saying, on a diplomatic effort. So I think it's just a question of how we frame it and how we think about it. But we have to do that in parallel with the military effort, because ultimately there will be some kind of diplomatic response uh, to this and perhaps somewhere down the line, a diplomatic solution. Sam, there's one common element or one particular common element that strikes me in Fiona and Andre's responses, and these have come in other responses to your your proposal, which is really about the willingness of the Russian side to engage in any meaningful way, even if it's correct that some kind of armistice would be more preferable than a kind of long war that has terrible human costs for Ukrainians above all. There's just no sign that the Russians are are there. Do you see any reason to see hope on that side? Is there some path there or even would it would a, a major diplomatic push likely bring us to a long war that will continue indefinitely? Well, I mean, I think it's important to note, of course, that uh, it might fail and it's probably likely to fail. So I have no illusions about this being easy or or Russia being a uh, particular under this leadership being a, an easy actor to deal with in, in international politics. I mean, I think we're past the point where anyone can make that case. I think that there are two questions, really. Um, and uh, the problem is that um, we 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 have only secondary information about how to answer them. Uh, the you know the first is like are they willing to engage at all? And some make the case that Russia is still pursuing their original maximalist aims, and they have no interest in talking under any circumstances, particularly not now. And then the question of like will they operate in good faith in the context of a negotiation? And so on the first question, you know, I think I see the argument that Russia is still pursuing maximalist aims and wouldn't sit down at the table. I've seen evidence to suggest that Russia has sort of had to adjust its aims given its failures. But the only way you can really find out for sure is by trying. And otherwise, it's just sort of educated attempts at reading um, Putin's mind, really. So I think we don't actually lose anything by testing the proposition that uh, under the circumstances, they might be willing to engage. And the second question, is, of course, is, you know, do they comply with, agree with, operate in good faith during negotiations or engagement of any sort? Of course, you have to assume bad faith given Russia's history, right? How many agreements it's broken that related to Ukraine security, how many times it has reneged on ceasefire agreements, etc. I think the point to make here, though, is that there have been good ceasefire agreements in the past in history and bad ones. And uh, Andre right, rightly points to the failures of the Minsk agreement to ever really produce security outcomes for Ukraine. And so the focus, I think, should be on how to make this, if there is to be one, a good one uh, that actually holds and that denies the opportunity to transform it into an operational pause. And I think that, you know, there are ways you can imagine doing that. Part of that, the groundwork was laid at the Vilnius summit with the the beginning of the negotiation of security, long-term security commitments for Ukraine. It's going to have to be, you know, a, a mixture of deterrence and 
sort of diplomatic mechanisms that uh, that reinforce the ceasefire. But we sort of have to assume bad faith and um, and try nonetheless to find ways of basically boxing in the Russians so that the cost of violating any potential agreement is is higher than any gains that are perceived to uh, accrue from it. We will end on that note. Thank you to all three of you for joining us for today for the work you've done for the magazine that has contributed to this conversation. Um, and with no disrespect to uh, Sam and Fiona, thanks especially to Andre for joining under very, uh, very difficult circumstances. Really appreciate it. And we will look forward to having more from all of you soon. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in. 